My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hey everyone, with us today we have Dr. Ahmed Hassan, who's an ophthalmologist. Thank you for joining us, Ahmed. Thank you. Can you tell us the story of how you've come to be an ophthalmologist? Yes, yeah, so when I did medicine, none of the specialties really jumped out at me. And I thought of thought, well, I'll just become a GP. And then in my second year HMO rotation in Bendigo doing anesthetics, I happened to stumble into an eye theater and watch cataract surgery on the TV monitor. And I just instantly, you know, just love at first sight. I just fell in love with it. And I guess going along in your uh, time as a medical student, was there anything else that you'd been considering at the time? Not really. Um, nothing really grabbed me. So that's why I thought, well, I'll do general practice, a um, bit of everything. But ophthalmology, was, it, really, it just really enthralled me from, the, from day one, and what from was the minute it, I saw it. And what was it about the actual cataract surgery or what, what you were doing that yeah, you really well, it? Was, well, A, it was bloodless surgery. So it's just this transparent sort of structures. It's very unique because the cornea is transparent, the lens is transparent, there's, they're avascular. This is bloodless surgery, microsurgery. I always liked fine things when I was a kid. I used to do fine crafts and art and calligraphy and pottery and things like that. So just seeing the surgeon sitting down, just use, like using just the tiniest movements in their fingertips to do the surgery. And yeah, it was, they were operating sitting down, very comfortable, instead of standing there under lights for eight hours. And um, yeah, maximum operation was half an hour. But just, yeah, just the science of it as well, the optics, the physics. And can you tell us uh, what happened afterwards and how you actually came to be an ophthalmologist, so you, your journey throughout? Yes, yeah, so I, um, I looked into it. I contacted the College of Ophthalmology at that time. There were no websites, so you just had to ring them up and <laughs> they'd posted out information of how to become an ophthalmologist and the reading list and the requirements. In those days, there was a part one exam, which was optics, physiology and anatomy. So I sort of went to the Eye Near Hospital Library and looked at the books um, that we'd need to study for, for the f- from for the first part exam. And I just sort of bit the bullet and, um, yeah, bought the books, started studying. And <laughs> it took basically yeah, many years after that to get there. But, yeah, once it sort of just hit me like a ton of bricks. I don't know. I just, I just liked it. Yeah. And so you went through a basic physician's training first? And then, no, no. No, no. The College of Ophthalmologists is a separate college. Yep. So it's not with the College of Surgeons. It used to be before 1970 I think and it's not with the College of Physicians it's a separate college they have their own entry requirements Um, nowadays there's no first part exam so nowadays it's based on your CV referees research Um, there's this 50 ophthal exam some people do where it's just a prize exam in ophthalmology that the College of Ophthalmologists run for 50 medical students you can do that if you want but it's not a big deal Um, Usually you'll, there are no real HMO jobs in ophthalmology. So normally you'd do a surgical type. So you do your internship, then you'd probably do a year of surgery. And later on, maybe things like plastics, ENT. Plastics is good for eyelid surgery, ENT, neurosurgery, RMO type jobs. 
and then you can apply it straight to the eye knee. So usually you do specialty surgical type rotations as an HMO and then apply to become an eye registrar. Some people take a year off and do um, a master's, you know, in ophthalmic sciences. There's um, a faculty of ophthalmology at Melbourne Uni based at the eye knee hospital called CIRA, the Centre for Eye Research Australia. And different states, like in Perth, there's the Lion's Eye Institute and there are different ones around. Um, so often people will take a couple of years off and do research projects with that. Some people In my, my days, people would take off sometimes two or three years to do full-on research, um, and that would really boost their CV. I didn't do that because I had a family at the time, and I was, so I just did unaccredited ophthalmology jobs. Yeah. And can you tell us about your roles at the moment? So where, what kind of jobs you have, where yeah, you work? So I'm a consultant at Monash Medical Centre, so... Most ophthalmology consultants, there's not the public work is shared around. So very few ophthalmologists have big public appointments. Even at the Eye and Ear Hospital, they're like nearly every ophthalmologist in Victoria will do say one or two sessions a month at the Eye and Ear or Monash or somewhere like that. So most ophthalmologists will do a small public um, session. So I, I, for example, I do one clinic a month at Monash, which is the paediatric ophthalmology clinic. So half-day clinic, and then I do one theatre a month. But all of us do that, so it fills the roster. And then the rest of the time I'm in my private rooms. For me, that's my own clinic in Dandenong, um, two days a week. And then I go to one thaggy one or two days a week in the nearby country and um, either operate or consult. And would that be the case with most ophthalmologists, where the I guess a large proportion of their work is taken up by private uh, work? Yes, yeah. so in ophthalmology... Um, most ophthalmologists will work, some are just private, especially the ones who do laser vision correction and things like that because it takes up a lot of their time. But most ophthalmologists will, yeah, will do maybe once a fortnight in the public system and the rest in their rooms. And you mentioned that, I guess, having research and all this other extracurricular type stuff is quite um, beneficial for looking uh, good towards the college. Is that something such as the fifth year exam that you were talking about? Is that something that you should be thinking about as a medical student to get involved in? or If you really know you want to... I mean, I didn't know I wanted to do ophthalmology until I was, you know, beyond internship. But many people, you know, they know from, from med school. So, yeah, you'd want to do your fifth year elective somewhere say Moorfields Eye Hospital is the most famous eye hospital in the world in London so if you can get an elective there that's fantastic um, John Hopkins or Will's Eye Hospital in America some people go to say Aravind in India which is a huge it's the best third world um, eye training institute it's incredible the volume of surgery they do they help the poor people in fact a lot of people who are training in ophthalmology from sub-Saharan Africa and places like that where they can't get to a western country to learn subspecialties like retinal surgery will go to Aravind or the um, LV Prasad in um, Hyderabad or Aravind in South India. And then in Nepal, there's the the apprentice of Fred Hollows, Sandu Gruet. He's got the Tilangana Eye Hospital in um, Nepal. So or the, even in Australia, you could go to Alice Springs. There's a very good Aboriginal health um, service and they have eyes in Alice Springs or even in Broome. There's um, a bus, Professor Angus Turner, it's called Iris, the Indigenous... Um, eye outreach eye service um, so he takes medical students as well so there are opportunities to do indigenous ophthalmology or third world ophthalmology in your fifth year elective that would be useful and then um, yeah surgical subspecialty type jobs and then look into the criteria for admission to the college of ophthalmology but yeah you'd probably do some research whether that means taking time out to do proper masters 
at CERA, S-C-E-R-A, at the Eye Hospital or some other institution, or doing um, some sort of clinical research and, you know, a journal article, for example, which is what I did when I was trying to get into ophthalmology. Mm-hmm. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. Do you know if uh, how popular ophthalmology is as a subspecialty and whether there's a lot of competition for getting into the training programs? Well, in Victoria, there are about eight positions every year. And in um, Adelaide, there are two. Perth, there are two. So... It's about 25 positions Australia-wide each year. So, yes, it's, it's, it's sort of like dermatology. It's not – they don't have many places. So, yes, it, it is competitive. It's very mm-hmm. popular, of course, in demand. Um, but like anything, if you, anyone who does medicine has got the brains to do it. It's more about determination and persistence and, um, yeah, that, that's really what it's about. Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, ophthalmology doesn't really have a bed card, so you're not exactly in charge of inpatients and whatnot. Do you see good and bad thing, good and bad things regarding that? Yeah. So a normal ophthalmologist's, you know, daily life is um, in their rooms. For example, it, it's pretty much nine to five. Um, it's all outpatient work, pretty much. Yes. So in my rooms, I you know start. It depends on your personal preference. Most people start eight thirty or nine, and you know finish at five, and then. With the on-call for Monash, for example, I came in last week at night for a penetrating eye injury. So the only emergency that you'd have to be called in as a consultant is a penetrating eye injury when the eyeball's been ruptured. So we had a guy working with a hammer and um, a piece of metal snapped off and went inside his eye. So I had to fish that out of the iris. So that was a three-hour operation. Mm-hmm. So I just finished consulting in my rooms and then went straight to Dandenong Hospital and assisted my registrar with that case and then got home at 10 but that happens maybe twice a year because there are so many of us on call that we share the roster yeah so yeah 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 and um so that's the only real on call as a registrar of course it's very busy because you're on call for a lot of things acute glaucoma all sorts of things but so the the registrars will handle that so the busiest time of my life was when i was a registrar training in adelaide i, I went there to train um ophthalmology you just got to take a job anywhere in australia you can get so i'm from melbourne but i went for four years to adelaide trained and yep. came back to melbourne so and that happens a lot in ophthalmology that you've just got to take a job wherever you can get it um but yeah the busiest time of my life was my second and third year training in adelaide because yeah i'd be on call a lot and you'd come in for things and then you'd ring the boss and they'd instruct you what to do. Unless it was a penetrating eye injury, then they'd have to come in. That was the only time they'd really come in. But other things, I'd be there after hours a lot, plus studying. So you're on call, you're working in the hospital. and But it's a very exciting time of your life because you're actually studying something that's making you better at your job. So it's the first time in your life that what you're studying is very relevant and will be relevant for the rest of your life so it's you're on adrenaline it's it's exciting so if you love your field of specialty that registrar time is is actually good it's busy but good given that there's i guess very few uh registrar openings each year is it difficult to find support like people in the same position as you essentially for to get through those tough times or do you find you kind of gel together like for me too I, i just ask people who are already 
you know, in the training, like what did you do or what's the best thing? So, you know, as you've been doing as medical students too. So you just ask the people a few steps ahead of you what yeah. to do and they'll give you the tips. So, yeah, if you're just positive, um, confident, dedicated, you know, that'll shine through and you'll be able to achieve whatever specialty you want, I think. Yeah, yeah. We've kind of already touched on uh, your work-life balance. So you say you'd have a pretty good work-life balance? Yeah, ophthalmology is, is good yeah. in that regard. It's not, yeah. And so across the board, most ophthalmologists you'd say would have a pretty good work-life balance? Yeah, and you I guess can work as much or as little as you want. Like I usually have like four and a half days at work. Operating's once a week, average. So whether it's public or private. So I do public in the country in one thing and then I'll do public here once a month and then I'll do private once a month in my clinic so all in all it ends up being about once a week that I'm operating and um, that'll be usually a half day list sometimes in the country it's a whole day list so there's more consulting than operating and usually most of them I'll just have a half day off or even a whole day off a week you know and your decision to work in Wonthaggy, was that a personal decision or is that something like mandated by the college or anything it like that? It was a personal decision. One of the um, senior ophthalmologists has a clinic out there and he was getting too busy, so he just asked me to come and try it out. In the country, the public surgery, there's a thing called fee-for-service where you get paid, not as much as a private case, but you don't get... In the city hospital, when you operate, you get paid per hour, so say $100 an hour, for example just as if you were doing a clinic as well when you're in a public hospital in the city. But in the country, the government has this thing called fee-for-service where you get paid, you won't get paid as if it was a private case, but you'll get paid per operation, maybe 70% of what it would be privately, but the patient doesn't pay anything that's public for the patient. So that encourages surgical specialists to go to the country. And that, so you'll find that many surgical specialists, not just ophthalmologists in, in all fields, plastic surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, gynecologists, um, general surgeons will go to the country a lot for that reason. They're getting, you know, there's always plenty of work and you know the patient doesn't have to pay, but the surgeon at least, you know, there's some incentive for them to go out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, many ophthalmologists, not all of them, but many do go maybe you know once a fortnight or some once a week, depending how far that countryside is to the country. What would you say is the most rewarding part about your particular specialty ophthalmology obviously saving vision uh, ophthalmology huge. is good like that it is very satisfying like yeah. i had actually a very memorable case this year there was an elderly gentleman who was brought in by his son pretty much blind in both eyes he'd had complicated cataract surgery elsewhere in one eye so that eye was already blind and his second eye developed a cataract and he'd left it for so long it was about 85 but he was so scared of having cataract surgery in the second eye because of what had happened to his first that he just neglected that cataract and it had gotten so bad that he, he he could you know he was basically blind in both eyes so cataract surgery is satisfying because even if the cataract's so far gone you can always fix it so his operation um was done and he had a good result and yeah he was he actually at the post-op visit was, the son said i oh, because he, he didn't speak English, the son said, oh, he's seeing you for the first time. It's the first time he's seen the doctor. And he was, the smile on his face was just amazing. And the whole family had been serving him and just, just to walk. He was actually tripping over stuff, just walking into my room from the waiting room when I first saw him. And then yeah. the second time, of course, he's automatic. He, he had good vision of um, 90% vision with that eye that we did. And it, that's, it's, it's good. It's good. So they say that hip replacement and cataract surgery, they did a big quality of life um, study 
And they said the two medical interventions that give you the best quality of life benefit for what they are, uh, hip replacement surgery in orthopedics and um, cataract surgery. So, yeah, obviously very, very satisfying job. And besides cataract surgery, what are the other, I guess, uh, surgeries that make up a lot of your time? The commonest, the real bread and butter common operation for all ophthalmologists is cataract surgery. Cataracts yeah. are very common. It's actually the commonest surgery done in Australia because it's a very, most people will get a cataract sooner or later, which is a cloudiness of the lens and it's easily corrected surgically. And everyone's got two eyes. So it's a very common um, procedure. There are some subspecialties within ophthalmology. So there's a thing called vitreoretinal surgery, which is um, another extra couple of years training. And then those surgeons, they'll do retinal surgery where the, if the retina is detached, they put it on, it's very technical and very um, sort of, like you have to have, you, you don't want to have shaky hands, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about millimetres. It's very precise. Yeah. Um, and ophthalmology is like that. But look, if you can write the letter O in lowercase, if you can draw a circle, like, yeah, then you can do cataract surgery. That's the same thing. It's if you can draw a neat letter O, or, you know, or make yourself have neat handwriting, I know it's a big ask for doctors, <laughs> um, then you can do cataract. It's the intrinsic muscles of your fingers that you're using. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned that you do paediatric clinic once a month as well. What was it about pe the paediatric side of things that drew you to that? Uh, I didn't actually do extra training. So there are some subspecialties within ophthalmology. There's paediatric ophthalmology. There's oculoplastic surgery, which is more about eyelids and things like that, and operating within the orbit. So that, um, And then there's corneal surgery, which is corneal transplants. I didn't actually do a fellowship in paediatric ophthalmology, but here at Monash, um, I just sort of fell into the role. They needed someone to do that clinic. And I'd done enough kids in my training um, in Adelaide that I was comfortable to do basic paediatric ophthalmology. But anything too complicated, I do send to the children until they recruit a, a fully trained um, paediatric ophthalmologist. But like normal crossed eyes or things like that I can do. So that's another type of surgery, strabismus, where you're working on the extraocular muscles. I do that. Yeah. Um, there's glaucoma surgery. So there are a few other operations, but cataracts are the commonest. But, yeah. And you find this uh, breadth of uh, work that you have, it keeps it interesting? Yeah, yeah. So in a typical day consulting, I'll see lots of things. So I'll see kids who need glasses. I'll see elderly people with cataracts, diabetic hemorrhages that sometimes need laser, glaucoma where you're just prescribing drops. It's a good mix of medicine and surgery. Yeah. Um, injuries, so there's often acute injuries. And then there's things like allergies foreign bodies in the eye so there's variety but yeah having said that pretty much there's not much history taking in ophthalmology it's either sure. you know bad vision or a red sore eye there's yeah. not much else yeah okay or double vision sometimes um and what aspect of the of the job of ophthalmology is the most difficult to deal with or that you struggle with the most um sometimes it's it's not really difficult, but it, yeah, sometimes you have to explain to the patient. Some people think that, like sometimes they might have a cataract, but then they've got an underlying pathology, or if they've got advanced macular degeneration, there's no real cure for that. So if they've, if they've had one eye that's gone blind from macular degeneration and then the other one's gone off, it, it's sometimes, yeah, it's, it's sometimes sad to have to break the news to the patient that they can't drive anymore or that you know, there's nothing we can do to improve the vision further or that they're legally blind. But then we just send them to Vision Australia who give um, 
a lot of support and low vision aids and or guide dogs Victoria can help. Um, yeah, it is sad when you see a case where the patient's lost vision in the second eye. Mm-hmm. And given that uh, a lot of your surgeries are quite intricate and whatnot, is there a higher risk of um, injuries or, I guess, things going wrong? Well, that's what the training's for. I think in any surgical specialty you get trained. Like yep. I said, if you can write, if you can make yourself write neatly or draw neatly, <laughs> yep. then you, you can do ophthalmology. It's just a matter of training. So as long as you haven't got, like there was one ophthalmologist I'd worked with in Adelaide who actually had no binocular vision. He, he had eye problems of his own. So he, he used to really hate doing cataract surgery because that one you do need depth perce- perception. So he ended up becoming a paediatric ophthalmologist where he only does strabismus repairs. Ah, okay. Yep. Because that's not, you're not inside the eye. You, you're, you know, external, it's, it's not as fine. So, so sure, if you've got some binocular vision problem or a tremor in your hands, then maybe ophthalmology is not, not for you. But um, most people are fine once you learn how to do it. Have you done any international work and have you found that that comes yeah. into play? Yes. Ophthalmology, plastic surgery and gynae are probably the three best for international work. So you'll find interplast, they'll go and fix cleft palates. That's something that's very easily done under local anesthesia. You don't need an ICU or anything. So plastic surgery, um, ophthalmology for cataract surgery, yes, is very portable. It's just done under local anesthesia. It's very quick surgery. And um, gynecology for fistulas. So you go to sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and women who've had um, birth trauma to their um, urinary tract can be surgically repaired and make a big impact on their lives. A lot of other things, you know, you can't go and take cardiothoracic surgery, you know, to sub-Saharan Africa because you need ICU and CCU and all sorts of things. Um, dialysis, you can't do that, you know. Mm-hmm. So so they're probably the three, orthopedics to some extent as well, but those three are the typical third world things. So yeah, I went to Burma or Myanmar back in 2004 when I was a final year registrar and did some um, work there. But I wasn't a full surgeon, so I was more just doing clinics and things and assisting. And then in 2011, I went to Ethiopia and did two weeks of operating, and I intend to go again. And what's your, I guess, what's your motivation for going? Is it help, I guess, there's obviously an altruistic aspect to it, helping the people. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you fund yourself, and it's just, um, you've got a skill, so why not use it on the people who need it the most? Having said that, at our last ophthalmology conference here in Melbourne, there were a lot of sessions discussing this sort of thing. And the real approach now, like Fred Hollows, for example, when I wanted to go um, one time, I contacted them and they don't take ophthalmologists from Australia anymore. All the money that they raise, they use to train local surgeons. Ah, yes. And they'll often, and now then, even if they can't find a local surgeon, what they'll do is they'll get a young ophthalmologist from India and or somewhere where they're trained up well and then pay their wage for two years in Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that and they'll get that young ophthalmologist to go on a contract with Hollows work in Fiji or New Guinea or some Pacific island and and that way they have continuity of care rather than someone like me just flying in for two weeks the same money they spend on having a whole Australian team go in for a few weeks would have paid the wage of that other young ophthalmologist from Southeast Asia or South Asia for maybe six months and at least you've got the doctor there on site providing follow-up which is actually much better yeah and the for them it's a, it's a lot better yeah please make sure to complete the survey for this episode we want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers 
It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Um, what are your interests outside of medicine and how does that fit into your life? Well, while you're training, <laughs> there is no, <laughs> no, there's not much interest out of medicine. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, after training, I do a lot of community work. My dad founded a school and I'm on the board. And then, um, yeah, family, really. I've got four kids, so just ferrying them around doing things. <laughs> yeah, it takes off a lot of time. But I guess it's good as an ophthalmologist. You get a lot of time to do all of, all of that extra extra things, which is great. Did you find you had to sacrifice a lot along the way? The registrar years, yes. When you're a registrar, there really isn't much time for anything else. So a lot of the extracurricular activities will just drop by the wayside because, you, as I said, you're, you're busy nine to five at work. Then you're studying really hard for your second part exams, which is clinical ophthalmology and pathology, plus you're on call. So in is any, the on call difficult? We were on call one in three. So yeah. So, yeah, you'd often go in at, say, 7 till 9 or something like that if there was an acute glaucoma. or There'd often be things that you, you had to go in for. So, yeah. yes, a yeah. corneal infection. So so the on-calls, th- th- just those last two or three years of registrar life when you really get into the studying is very hectic. And, yeah, you have to shut everything else yeah. down a bit. Yeah, but which seems okay. to be the same with yeah, across all fields. Any yeah. specialty will be like that because you're working full-time and the yeah. registrars are running the unit usually. Consultants are off in their rooms. Residents are still inexperienced. So the registrars are pretty much running the show, plus doing the on-call, <coughs> plus studying. Mm-hmm. But it all feeds into each other because you're so into it. And then you're studying it because you've just seen all these cases. So you actually want to go home and study yeah, it so you can learn more yeah. about it. So you're sort of on a high. It's, it's quite an exciting period of, of life. But yes, it does push out a lot of other activities. But once you become a consultant, once you've passed your exams, you're actually quiet because you just no one really knows about you yet. So I used to find that when I, for the first three or four years or more after I graduated, after I became an ophthalmologist, I had plenty of free time. And actually I had to like try and find hobbies again or just <laughs> remind myself of what else to do with my time. Yeah. And you'll find that across any specialty. I think people have that sort of sudden, you know, oh, a lot of free time. And a lot of my registrars now, the female ones, they'll often start a family after they've, finish their the minute they finish their training then they start a family at that time because they've suddenly now got time as a young consultant you're you're still not that busy in your career and you don't have to study anymore yeah and uh, one last question about i guess being a registrar is your patient load quite high or are they complicated patients usually or like what makes it a busy time or is there just not enough for example staff for the number of patients well, in clinic, in a public hospital clinic, there'll be a lot of patients, yes. Yeah. So there'll be heaps of patients. So maybe, yeah, as you say, not a, not enough stuff. The waiting room's always full. Yeah. So there's time pressure to see the patients. And then you'll have emergencies come in where someone's come in with, you know, acute glaucoma or, a, you know, some sort of injury to their eye and you've got to, you know, deal with that, organise theatre and then go to theatre. And, and when you're training to learn how to do cataract surgery... It's also more strict, like now, because I've done so many, it's just like normal. But when you're, you know, when you've got to go to theatre and you're learning how to do cataract surgery, it's exciting, but you're also under a bit of pressure because it's it's very intricate surgery and, you know, you, you've really got to concentrate. So yeah. so when you're in theatre also, you enjoy it because, you know, you're becoming a real surgeon, but it has its moments if you have a complication. Um, of course. 
yeah, so that can get you down a bit, but you just got to keep at it. And that's in any surgical specialty. And is there, do you do much non-clinical work as an ophthalmologist or is it pretty much all just clinical work? Because I'm affiliated with Monash, I, I teach. So I do um, lectures, maybe once every two or three months. I give two lectures a year to the third year Monash med students and then one lecture a year to the um, fourth years. And then also we have registrars through our unit. So mm-hmm. other ophthalmologists would do registrar teaching I don't do that because most of the registrar teaching in Melbourne happens at the Ionia Hospital, so I'm yep. not there. But over there, then a lot of the ophthalmologists would be involved in teaching. Some are involved in research, not many, but some people really do like research. So they're involved with CIRA, which is the Centre for Eye Research Australia at the Ionia Hospital. And they, you know, between their clinical commitments, they'll get into research. So, and some, as I say, do a lot of third world work. There are some who go every year to a particular place. Like there's one ophthalmologist here in Melbourne who goes up to. Um, Indonesia every year. There's another one who goes to Vietnam every year. There's, there's some in Sydney that go to Fiji every year. So a lot of ophthalmologists have regular um, developing country work as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the last question I had is, what advice would you have wanted to know as an intern and would you like to pass on to others? Well, as I said, I didn't actually discover... <laughs> ophthalmology is sort of like skin. It's sort of off the radar. So I didn't actually have much exposure to it at all. didn't really think about it at all till I was a second year HMO. So... You're all going to get exposed to psych, obs, gyne, peds, surge, med. So I th- what my advice would be is just search out those other weird specialties that no one ever tells you about because you might like it. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice, actually. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. My thank pleasure. You. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. Alright guys, see you next week.